Part of our celebration of Advent is going to be also then this sermon series that we're beginning today. Uh, and we're calling this sermon series Watching and Waiting. When we say watching and waiting, um, what are we watching and waiting for in the Advent season? Advent, uh, Advent anticipates, as many of you are familiar with, the birth of Jesus Christ, which is what we celebrate every year on Christmas on December 25th. Some of us right now, and especially that Thanksgiving is behind us, some of us may be starting to anticipate Christmas fairly well. Um, you may have gotten some of the decorating at your house done over the past couple days. You might have started buying Christmas gifts. Maybe you braved some of the crowds for Black Friday. You may have uh, begun preparing your home to welcome guests and family and friends from out of town. You may be starting to listen to Christmas music if you didn't start that after Halloween. Um, you may be rebooting or starting new Christmas traditions in your house uh, with your family. But here's my bet in all of that, that Christmas for you is a lot more about the past than it is about the future. That Christmas for you and your celebrations is more about the past than it is about the future. It's about Christmases that have gone by, uh, trying to maybe recapture or recreate the beautiful memories that you have about Christmas in this season. At the same time, maybe trying to avoid or trying to work through the painful and difficult memories you have about this season. On a, on a grander scale, it's about this past event of the birth of Jesus Christ. Right, this cosmic intervening rescue mission of God the Father sending his one and only son into the world to reconcile the world to himself. And all of this is true and it's completely essential. Right? There would not be nothing to celebrate in the season of Advent on the, the day of Christmas if Jesus Christ did not take on human flesh and take up residence among us, we who are the broken sinful men and women that we are. But that's really only half of what Advent is about. The word Advent literally means coming. And so Advent proper when we is when we remember the first coming of Christ into the world. But one of the dominant themes in Scripture, really all of Scripture, but especially in the New Testament, is that there is a second coming, quite literally a second Advent of Jesus. And that's the half of Advent that we often miss. And sadly, it's actually the very half that would help us enter into this season with the kind of anticipation that's meant to characterize our celebration. So to anticipate something is to prepare for something, is to be excited for something which has not yet happened. Anticipation is future-facing. But you and I, at least I, am terrible most of the time at anticipation. And that's especially true when the gap between announcement and arrival, the gap between promise and fulfillment grows long. And so as a society and as individuals, our solution has been and will probably continue to be in some way, shape, or form shortening the gap by whatever means possible. So just as a small example of that, TV shows now release entire seasons at a time because apparently it was too tall in order for us to wait seven days between episodes. We're bad at anticipation. TV producers know that, so now they just release the entire season all at once so we can binge watch it in a, in a single sitting. When we read passages like the ones from Isaiah that we've heard today, that John, Mariah, or John Paul and Mariah read from the Advent wreath, we hear in those passages this hope and this anticipation that God is going to send a Savior. But we perhaps forget that there was a 700-year gap 
between God making those promises and Isaiah writing them down to when Jesus was born. And that's the part of Advent that maybe we resonate with or maybe we, maybe we struggle to relate to. What was it like to be waiting, often in apparent silence, century after century, for God to fulfill his promise? What was that like? Can you imagine how hard that would have been for the people of God? Their hope would have diminished. And God's promises would have faded into the background in the midst of more urgent and pressing circumstances that are involved in in day-to-day life. But what I'd invite you to consider this Advent season especially is that we know precisely what that is like. We actually have a camaraderie with the men and women from Isaiah's day who looked forward and didn't know it was going to be 700 years till the arrival of Jesus. All right, today we look back on God's fulfilled promises in his first coming, but we also look forward to the complete fulfillment of the kingdom of God at the second coming of Christ. We, we learn in scripture that the, the kingdom of God has come and at the very same time, the kingdom of God is coming. And we're meant to be a people who constantly watch and wait for the return of our king. Right? For this, as the New Testament calls it, this day of the Lord, where in judgment, in mercy, in triumph, Jesus returns and he makes right all that has been made wrong by sin. For us, it hasn't just been 700 years. It's been nearly three times that long. And so likewise for us, and perhaps you find yourself there today, hope diminishes. Some people actually alter the way they read Scripture entirely, saying there will be no second coming, that the writers of the New Testament were mistaken. And I think some of what's underneath that is it just gets hard to continue to hope. And so it's easier to find another explanation. We don't have to try to anticipate any longer. Even for those who still believe this will happen, God's promises fade into the background in the midst of more pressing day-to-day life. And because we're bad in anticipation and because this gap between promise and fulfillment has grown long and then even longer, we're content to settle to keep Christmas as merely the celebration of the past rather than what I think it can be and should be, which is a yearly renewal in our anticipation of the future. So as we do both, as we look back and remember the first advent of Jesus, my deep desire for my own life and for yours is that during this season, we would become more faithful in watching and waiting for the second advent of Jesus. And that by thinking about the second advent, by meditating on it in scripture, that even these scriptures that are anticipating the first advent of Jesus would become more meaningful to us, would become more living and active, that we would have this camaraderie with the the men and women who lived in these days and who wrote down those words as we wait for the coming of Christ. And so with that, I'm going to invite you to follow along with me as I read. I'm going to read 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13, and I'll read through chapter 5, verse 11. So listen now with open ears to the book that we love. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others, as others do who, do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. 
Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the light or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. God of all hope and joy, open our hearts in welcome that your Son, Jesus Christ, at his coming, may find in us a dwelling prepared for him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So for these next couple weeks, we're going to spend time uh, here in 1 Thessalonians. We'll spend some time in the Gospels, a little bit in the book of Revelation. Uh, This passage in particular in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians helps us start to get our head around the second coming of Christ. It's one of the main themes of Paul, uh, of Paul's letter that he's writing here. And three things specifically for us to see from this passage. That the second advent is our unexpected expectation. The second advent informs hopeful grieving. And the second advent demands wakeful living. So it's our unexpected expectation. It informs hopeful grieving, and it demands wakeful living. First, let's talk about how the second advent is our unexpected expectation. There's a paradox, and maybe you heard it even in the words as we read them, around the second coming of Jesus. And that is that no one, including Jesus himself, knows the time or the hour. Those are words directly from the mouth of Jesus that we'll read actually in a couple weeks. Only God the Father knows the time and the hour. And one of the metaphors that shows up in the New Testament often is that this day will come like a thief in the night. If we knew that a thief was coming tonight, that would not catch us off guard. And since it's hunting season, and since this is central Pennsylvania, which bears a lot of resemblance to Texas when it comes to gun ownership, if we expected a thief to come, that would end with usually a trip to the hospital for the thief, not a successful burglary. The point of this metaphor is if we know this precise time range in which Christ is going to come, we would be prepared. But even as Paul says, Christ will come like a thief in the night, two verses later, just two verses later, he says, Christians should not be surprised by this at all, that they should expect this. So the second advent is our unexpected expectation. It's unexpected in its timing, but it's completely expected in its certainty, right? We know not when, but we do know indeed that Christ will come again. At some point, every generation thinks that this will happen during their lifetime. Uh, That began all the way back when this letter was written and it's continued all the way into the present. So if you've ever had the thought 
that Jesus was going to come again during my lifetime, that's not something that's particularly unique or novel to you. That's not some kind of special revelation from God to you. It's certainly not God telling you to become one of the misguided that exists in every generation who rent a billboard, pick a date, and try to convince everybody else that there's a, a time coming and that they know it. If you've ever, uh, if you've ever noticed this too, that, that's kind of the tragedy in the church whenever we talk about the second coming of Christ. That immediately our, our focus and our emphasis gets pulled toward trying to determine a date and trying to figure out how we can determine and, and read kind of current events in light of the Bible. It's kind of like have a history book or the newspaper in one hand, have the book of Revelation in the other, and see if you can chart it out in some kind of way to pick the date that Christ will come back. And it's always done with bad graphic design. <laughs> always done with bad graphic design, which just begs the question, like, if you can crack the code of God's timing that no one can crack, why can't you take an art class or hire a good graphic designer? Every single generation has thought Christ will return during their lifetime, and to date, every single generation has been wrong about that. But here's the thing. If we can avoid the errors of thinking that we are special and unique, if we can avoid the error of trying to determine a precise date, there's actually something very good, very right, and very beautiful about that. And I'll confess, and I'm sure it's evident in, in my words, I'm quick to become cynical when I hear people say that they think Jesus is coming back soon. I'm able to nod. I'm able to smile politely. But because the timing of Christ's second coming is unknown, because it's unexpected, I'm fine just leaving it at that. But where I'm better at the unexpected piece of this, I'm called in Scripture to be equally expectant. To be convinced that Jesus is coming back soon is actually a far more faithful response than what I often find in my own heart. Paul, the apostle who writes this letter, he never guaranteed that Jesus was coming back during his lifetime, but if you read his letters, it sometimes sounds as though he did guarantee it. It sometimes sounds like that, and that's because Paul lived a life of watching and waiting. And that's really what every generation of Christians is meant to live, lives of watchful anticipation of this unexpected expectation. So as much as I tend to emphasize the unexpected, Paul here in this letter emphasizes our reasons to expect this. In verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5, he says that God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake, meaning alive, or asleep, meaning physically dead, we might live with him. So what Paul's doing there is he's looking back on the first advent of Christ, Christ's first coming into the world where he died on our behalf, and he's saying this, he's saying the first advent is the guarantee of the second advent. Because that was promised and then it was fulfilled, now there's a second advent promised and indeed it will be fulfilled. He has secured for us the resurrection and eternal life for all who believe in him. So the second advent is our unexpected expectation. I would ask you each to consider this as we begin the celebration together this year. Which is more natural for you? Is it more natural to be expectant if so, then the anticipation of the Advent season will probably be easier for you. And the struggle will perhaps be to avoid embodying this old adage that we are so heavenly-minded as Christians that we're of no earthly good. Maybe it's easier for you to be expectant about that, but you're so consumed by thinking about the future that you're not a lot of good in the present. If you're able to be expectant, 
then what I would say is praise God, that's what we're called to be. And you can help people who aren't, because I'm guessing that the majority of people are not good at this. But as you are expectant, what I would always encourage you in is to, to not waste your time, your energy, or your emphasis trying to determine something that's always going to be unexpected. If, on the other hand, it's more natural for you to resign yourself to the unexpected part of this, then what I would ask you to do as we begin the season is to spend some time reading and meditating on the promises of God in passages like this. Uh, read Isaiah's prophecies about the first coming of Christ. And really connect your struggle to anticipate the second coming of Christ with the struggle that those men and women would have had as they waited those 700 years between promise and fulfillment. Ask God in that to rip out the cynicism that you find in your heart and to give you greater expectation. Ask God to convince you more deeply that because this first advent indeed did happen and it is our salvation, that there really will be a second advent and maybe, even maybe, that could come soon in our lifetime. So the, the second advent is our unexpected expectation. Second, the second advent uh, informs hopeful grieving. It informs hopeful grieving. This letter was written somewhere around 50 A.D. It's one of the earlier of Paul's uh, letters that he wrote in that first century. And Paul is addressing here young Christians very early on in the history of the church, and they're concerned that those among them who have died have missed out on Christ's second coming. And what he's doing in the passage that we read is offering them assurance that they have not missed out on anything, that people who die will still be included in the resurrection and eternal life. And there's this key line that shows up in chapter 4, verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. So the second advent informs a hopeful kind of grief. And this is incredibly relevant and important this time of year. Because holidays are a time where, if not, many, if not all of us, then at least many of us, feel the loss of loved ones. Whether it's family members of yours, friends of yours, people that you used to spend these sweet, life-giving moments with. Death makes holidays painful. One of um, our neighbors lost her mom just about two months ago, and Shay was spending some time with her uh, on Friday, and she was sharing how it was even harder than she imagined to celebrate Thanksgiving for the first time uh, without her mom. And I know a lot of you can relate to that. You've lost family members even in the last year, and this is now the first kind of round of the holiday season that you're celebrating without that person. The grief of death can be the enemy of anticipating and celebrating the season well. We start to dread it instead of to anticipate it. And that really, the dread, the grief, would be our only possible response if not for the fact that as Christians we are those who grieve but not without hope. Our anticipation of the second advent reminds us that death and grief, they are real, they are powerful, but they do not have the final word. And I would submit this to you for your consideration. Apart from the advent of Jesus, there's only two responses. There's either wishful thinking or devastation. Apart from the advent of Jesus, there's either wishful thinking or there's devastation. With the coming of Jesus, though, there is hopeful grieving. 
And on a broad scale, we need a way to grieve the brokenness of the world. We need a valid and substantiated way to lament that things are not the way that they are supposed to be without being written off as pessimists, without being written off as naysayers. We need a way to actually lament the things that are wrong in this world. At the same time, we need a way to rejoice in the midst of the heaviness. We need something that is likewise valid and substantial that lifts the weight off of our shoulders. And something that isn't just baseless optimism filled with trite and cliche catchphrases. So maybe you've seen the bumper stickers out and about, life is good, or any other variation of something about think positively, or be happy. And whenever I see those, I just want to ask, why? Why is life good? Why should I be positive? Because if you really believe that life is good, and I think you have reason to believe that, but if you really believe that, then you either have a much more robust understanding that that cliche phrase leads me to believe, or you have your head buried in the sand. You live in a bubble of your own creation. Years ago, a Monty Python movie called The Life of Brian captures this, I think, brilliantly, when at the end of the movie, it shows hundreds of crucified Christians whistling and singing a song called Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. Anybody familiar with this movie and seen it? Maybe a few. Hundreds of Christians crucified, whistling and singing, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. It is irreverent as anything, but it is a sadly accurate portrayal of our cultural perception of what many Christians are like. Baseless optimism, cliche catchphrases about positivity. Christians are those who grieve deeply. That's what Paul says here. The difference between Christians and those without Christ is not that those without Christ grieve and Christians don't. The difference is that Christians grieve with hope. That's our, that's our heritage as God's people. Isaiah's prophecies about the coming Messiah, think about the things that happened between those promises being made and the fulfillment of Christ's first coming into the world. Right around the same time Isaiah penned those words, the northern kingdom of Israel was being conquered by Assyria. And then a hundred or so years later, the southern kingdom of Judah was conquered by Babylon and God's people were sent away from the promised land into exile. And if you've ever read places in the Bible like the book of Lamentations, then you know what the real-life horrors were like. Mothers even eating their own children because they're starving, making deals with other parents about whose kid is next so that they might survive. If that's what you're experiencing in life, then you better have a way to grieve with hope. You better have something valid and substantial that allows you to both be wrecked by the evil and deplorability of what you're experiencing, while at the same time having some genuine measure of hope. Because if not, you will either end your own life in devastation and despair, or you will drive yourself insane trying to look on the bright side of life. But the advent of Jesus is the substance that fuels hopeful grieving. It was for the men and women of Israel and Judah as they were conquered in exile. It was for the early church as they experienced the persecution of Rome. It continues to be for you and me who witness and experience the evil and brokenness of our day. Whether it's things as broad and global as a children's hospital in Aleppo being bombed like it was this week or things as personal and close to home as your mom or your friend or your other loved one who passed away and is not around for the holidays anymore. Even when we never get an answer for why these things happen the way that they do, 
Advent is what allows us to say with validity that something is wrong, but it will not be wrong forever. Advent is what allows us to say with validity, Christ is coming. And because he is coming, we can grieve deeply, but we can grieve with hope. One other thing in this that we can't miss. What Paul says here underscores just how important it is to believe in Jesus and his death and resurrection. Right? It's Christians who are those who grieve and don't, uh, who, who don't grieve without hope. But the flip side of that is that those who are apart from Christ, they do grieve without hope. And so we should never manipulate or scare or otherwise pressure people into belief, but because we love other people and because we know our own need for hope in the midst of our own grief, then our deepest desire for every human being we encounter should be that they likewise trust in Jesus and find a way to have hope in the midst of their grief as well. So the second advent informs hopeful grieving. And then third, the second advent demands wakeful living. Wakeful living. Chapter five, verses five and six. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. It can get a little confusing in this passage because Paul sometimes uses the awake and asleep Contrast to talk about people who are alive and people who are dead. Here he's not talking about people who are alive and dead, but sleep here means a spiritual or moral apathy. It means living without a conscious awareness of the second advent of Jesus. And what he says is that instead of that, Christians are called to live wakefully. Here's, here's the danger, and, I, and it's one that I am well acquainted with and perhaps you are as well that the gap between the promise and fulfillment of Christ's second coming has grown so long and there have been so many predictions that haven't come, that haven't, have, haven't come to bear that it can be, that, that that can have little to no impact on my day-to-day life. The gap has grown so long that the second coming of Christ has little to no impact on my day-to-day life. It just kind of lives in this nebulous, far-off place in our hearts and minds where when we attend a funeral, or when somebody rents a billboard and picks a date, that's when we maybe for a few days start to think about this again. And then we go right back into more pressing matters. On the one hand, there are other matters to attend to. There are many of them. And Paul actually rebukes Christians for idleness in light of the second coming. So the waiting piece of watching and waiting is not a passive kind of waiting. It's not laziness. It's not looking to the sky and being of no earthly value. But what Paul says is that the second advent really informs and shapes how and why we attend to every other matter in our lives. The fact that it is expected, that it is a certain future, means that these really are the lenses through which we view and understand all of our lives. But the fact that it is unexpected, that no one knows the day or the hour, means that we must always be watching. We must always be attentively looking through those lenses. So these aren't like the glasses that the eye doctor prescribed you, that you carry around with you everywhere, but you never actually take out of the case and wear. I know none of you ever do that or don't know anybody in your family that does that. These aren't like that, right? Sometimes we carry these glasses around, we never take them out, and we say, you know, I don't really need them. My eyes aren't that bad. Or I don't really want to become dependent on this. 
The important thing is that I've got them if I need them, right? I can pull them out when I need to. We treat the second advent of Christ like that often. But what Paul says is, no, we have these lenses because we do need them and we are dependent on them. So we've got to watch through them, not just taking them out of the case for comfort at funerals or for clarity when someone predicts a date. We didn't read this far, but if we were to finish out chapter 5, Paul gives all of these directives, practical calls of the Christian life. But here's the important thing. All of them are grounded in what? They are grounded in a confident expectation of Christ's return. So what does it mean to live wakefully in light of the second coming of Christ? It means what Paul lists in the rest of that chapter. Because Jesus is coming again, here's a few things. Be at peace among yourselves. Right? Eternal life, the prospect of future forever with Jesus, that's meant to be comforting. It's not, to me- it's not meant to generate fear. It's not meant to create division among us over times and dates and the specifics of how that's all going to happen. It's the fulfillment of God's promise to finally bring this peace that we long for. So among ourselves, we can begin to taste of that peace now. He says, admonish the idol. Right? I mentioned before, he rebukes people who are idle. We don't wait passively. And here's the thing, however long this gap is between promise and fulfillment, it is that long of a gap, not a second shorter and not a second longer, that God has important and necessary work for his people to do. So he says, don't twiddle your thumbs looking to the sky. Get to work because there is much to be done. Encourage the faint-hearted. Right? You will get faint-hearted. And many of you are faint-hearted right now. You're going to get tired, and you're going to grieve, and you're going to need encouragement. And so will everyone else around you. So several times in this passage, Paul says, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another that Christ is coming again when you're faint-hearted, when you can't seem to fathom making it through another day. Be encouraged that Jesus is coming. Help the weak. Sin is real. Sin has not been eradicated yet. And so in our own sin and in in the fracture that sin brings about in the world around us, we are weak people. We need help. And so we're called to carry one another's burdens, to help one another as we are weak. As we watch and wait, we come alongside and we help other people who are likewise watching and waiting. Be patient with everyone. Because it's Jesus who is returning, people actually matter, not just the results of our lives. So this is not the same thing as a doom and gloom apocalyptic message that says the world is ending, so hurry up and accomplish whatever it is that your agenda entails. Whatever results that you've set out to accomplish with your life of proving yourself and making the world a better place by your own strength. This is Jesus coming again, and that's different. It means actually love people and love people patiently rather than bulldozing them for the sake of accomplishing a result. Don't repay evil for evil, but seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Because Jesus is coming again soon, we we leave the vindication to him, and we seek the genuine good of others even when they have not offered the same to us. And then he says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. And again, not as baseless optimism and positivity, 
but because you have real reason for hope in the midst of the brokenness and the suffering. So you can give thanks and you can rejoice at all times. And then he says, a couple verses later, abstain from every form of evil. Because there is no time to waste on life-quenching, soul-killing pursuits. You've been saved from evil through the first advent of Christ. You will be saved from all evil through the second advent of Christ. Pursue that kind of holiness in the days between. This is what it means to live wakefully. We don't have to dream up interpretations or applications for this. Paul gives us the list. We admonish the idle. We encourage the faint-hearted. We help the weak. We're patient with everyone. We don't repay evil for evil, but we seek to do good to all. We rejoice. We pray without ceasing. We give thanks in all circumstances. We abstain from all evil. That's what it means to live wakefully, watching and waiting for the second coming of Christ. And in closing, let me just say this. We are not as Christians, a people whose ultimate hope is based on escaping this world. And we are not a people whose hope is based on a humanistic ability to improve society and to improve our lives. We are a people whose hope is that God, through Jesus, is reconciling the world to himself. And on the day of his second advent, that work will be complete and all who believe will be with him forever. So Jesus' first advent was promised and has been fulfilled. And his second advent has been promised. So may we be a people who watch and wait for our unexpected expectation. And as the years grow long, be renewed in your anticipation this season. Be renewed in your watching and waiting this season. Let it inform hopeful grieving for you when you need to grieve. Let it elicit wakeful living. And may we be a people who anticipate well and may we be a people more than anything who are found faithful when our anticipation is met with the arrival of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, help us to look to your second coming more than we do right now. We confess that it's easier for us just to stay busy just to look back and to kind of leave out this massive part of what our celebration of Advent is meant to be, which is to look to the future, to look to you in the day you will come again. And we pray that you would stir up in our hearts more of an anticipation, more of an expectation for your coming. And we pray that your scriptures would come alive to us by the work of your spirit, particularly as we read these, these men who, and women who, who looked to the day that you would come the first time. And as we are as we are the recipients of that, that, the benefit of looking back on that, I pray that, that their words would stir up in us anticipation for your second coming. I pray that we would connect the dots well. And I pray that as a, as a church, we would live wakefully in these ways that you have called us to live, that we would encourage one another with these words often, that your second coming would truly be an encouragement to us in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our faint-heartedness, in the midst of our temptation to be idle. Stir up in us anticipation. Solidify our hope because it is not wishful thinking. It is our confident expectation that you will come again. We pray this in your name. Amen.